It's a new episode of Carry the Two, and I've got another surprise for you listeners. Hello. Ian is still MIA, prepping for a vacation away from the cold of Chicago, so I've brought in another guest host. Should I introduce myself? Yeah, let's do it. I'm Jude Higdon. And I'm Sadie Witkowski. And you're listening to Carry the Two. A podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, a.k.a. MC. This is usually the podcast where Sadie and Ian talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. But today, we're changing it up once more with Jude joining me as co-host. Jude, do you want to say a bit more about your background? Sure. Thanks, Sadie. Well, as I said, my name is Dr. Jude Higdon, and I'm the Chief Operations Officer and co-founder of the QSight Institute. My background is in educational and organizational psychology. And Jude's team was the other half of the research collaboration workshop that was hosted here at MC this past January. Along with Carrie Diaz-Eaton and her group, listen to the uh, previous episode for more on that, Jude's QSide Institute team was hard at work on a prototype. Although instead of a single tool, we were trying to build a toolkit that could be used across multiple communities. That's right. As I recall, your acronym for the group was STOPA, Small Town Police Accountability Lab. Is that right? That's right. The STOPA Lab is actually a part of the QSide Institute. And for our research collaboration project, we were focused on developing a toolkit for procuring, structuring, and analyzing policing data in small towns that lack the resources and systems to make their own data public. MC, as we often say in the credits, is located in Chicago, which is a major metropolitan area. Though I did grow up in a small town in Texas before I moved. So what inspired your group to focus on small towns as opposed to big cities? Well, more than 75% of incorporated places in the U.S. have populations of less than 5,000 people. In fact, less than 40% of the U.S. population lives in cities with populations of more than 50,000 people. So small-town policing affects a massive number of people who may not have the resources or know how to get started with analyzing data from their police departments. That's quite a big challenge to be taking on. Actually, I think the best way to start this conversation is to hear from the rest of the team who worked on STOPA, starting with Lily. Right. Liliana Gordon is an incoming Harvard undergraduate student who I interviewed in the first couple of weeks on this project. I think for me, one of the things, especially as a a queer Black young woman, that is so important is enabling others to have opportunity and potential. And so I think with this particular project, it is about building capacity and opportunity for those in need through data transparency. I think that's the way that I would phrase it because a lot of folks don't have the opportunity to be a part of these types of things, don't have the opportunity to build themselves and find resources because they're so focused on the immediate, right? Like when your very existence is resistance, you don't have the opportunity to join these types of things. And so really what we're trying to do 
in the Stapa lab is make sure that those types of barriers are removed for folks in terms of policing so that they can have the opportunity to get involved in things that are greater than than themselves, I think, um, because so often we're just not given that. So we hoped that by building this toolkit while at MC, we could help local organizers pursue their goals with some form of structural support. And as I understand it, Lily was extremely helpful in the first step. I almost want to call it step zero of, you know, making sure you're building the toolkit in a way that focused on potential and known community needs first. I think my focus these past few weeks have been on really just creating pathways and of communication so that activists who are on ground in Nashville and Baltimore and other places can communicate to the data scientists here. Because, you know, when building community participatory action teams, you have to make sure that there is communication. And a lot of times, you know, both groups can be kind of isolated in, in their work, right? And so one thing that I have been trying to do is kind of representing some activists, um, particularly in places like No Exceptions Prison Collective in Nashville and the Black Nashville Assembly. Um, even though I'm just a member, like I, I know them. And so just making sure that their voices are heard in this mission and ensuring that we are making this toolkit, this project accessible to all, regardless of various roadblocks that people might be experiencing or facing. I should also mention that taking on this idea through QSIDES, which stands for the Institute for Quantitative Study of Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity, right, had already established a group called the STOPA Lab. And we had already been working with Williamstown, Massachusetts, and Durham, North Carolina to collect data on local policing. Our time at MC was aimed at scaling this process up into a toolkit for use in any small town or city in America. And building the toolkit to make sure that we can provide the resources necessary for social justice activists, for grassroots organizers, and for data scientists at all education levels so that they can get involved in this work and start building resistance and creating change. So it's been exciting. So I think Lily's explanation helps lay the groundwork, but what were the actual steps in the STOPA toolkit that your team was developing over the course of a month at MC? So after we cataloged the kinds of needs that small towns have, our next step was to procure data. I think we should hear from William, since that was his main assignment for the month. William Bork is a grad student at Michigan State University, where he does work on data analytics and education. Ironically, I'm not actually working on all of that technical stuff. I'm working on the get data side. And so what we're trying to do is collect more data from other small town police departments and create a, a workflow that is, we can think of it like a user playbook. and. I'm kind of testing, testing that 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 workflow. So the reason I chose that was because I've never requested data from any public institution. I don't know anything about that. And so for that reason, I was interested in learning more and, and trying to fit into the project that way rather than my typical contributions, which have been maybe more on the technical side. Oh, yeah. I totally didn't even think of that. 
It's kind of like being a journalist making FOIA requests. That's Freedom of Information Act requests. Yes, it is similar in that different districts and cities have different processes for requesting their data and expectations about how soon you should receive a reply. A challenge for me is that because I am going through data collecting, is that there is lag time between me requesting data and actually getting it. So even just the process of collecting the data that you want to work with can be quite time consuming. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I thought it was slow going running sleep studies in my PhD program, but I didn't have to wait to hear back from governmental officials. So what was the next step after collecting data? Well, that's only half of the data that you need to collect. Wait, what's the second half? You need something to compare the police records against. If you're trying to determine whether people with certain intersectional identities are more targeted by police than others or are policed differently than people from other intersectional identities, then you need to know a baseline. Right. So you need general demographics data for that small town or city as well. My role in this project was mostly trying to figure out how to collect and analyze census data when combined with policing data to be able to better understand how we actually answer questions about how communities are policed. For example, we might see certain demographics in the policing data compared to demographics of a given community and be able to make conclusions about the different biases that might be present in how our communities are being policed. You just heard Claire Kelling, an assistant professor of statistics at Carleton College. Her primary role was to help collect the census data and to build a process that would make it easy for future groups to collect that data as well. We then use that census data as a baseline for our analysis. Okay, so William collected police data, Claire collected census information, and then you're good to go? Well, no. <laughs> Man, I just keep jumping the gun here. Not all data is organized the same way. Each town or police department might organize their data differently and even file it differently. So you're saying it doesn't arrive all nice and neat with variables clearly labeled in an easy-to-analyze Excel spreadsheet? Not usually, not even close. This is where Sam Hansen took over organizing the next step. I was doing what we refer to as step two, which was uh, extract and transform. Sam is a mathematician and they're the mathematics and statistics librarian at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Most of the time, the form which the data comes in is not the form that you can actually use to do anything with. And so I was putting together documentation and workflows to try to extract the data from whatever form you get it and then transform it into a usable format. As anyone who's worked with a public data set would know, cleaning and organizing the data often feels like half the battle. Yeah, when I spoke to Sam, they mentioned that they had built a branching set of instructions for how to organize and read in the data based on the form the data they received came from the department. If I were trying to do this research solo, this is definitely where I'd drop off. Not knowing how to even get the data readable feels like such a challenge. For sure. 
our hope is that the toolkit will be well-structured enough that at least for some basic questions, we can help local communities to find, clean, and analyze their local police laws, even if they don't have a professional statistician or data scientist to work with. So after we get the data and we format it into some sort of usable, organized form, what's next? Well, why don't we let Clarissa Ache Cabello explain, since she took on that step. I have done some analysis. I've been trying to expand on those and create some templates and examples for people to choose how to answer some of the policing questions they might have in their small towns. So when I spoke with Clarissa here at MC, she told me how, as a graduate student at Duke University, she'd worked with undergrad students to think through these questions as they pertain to Durham. Yeah, Clarissa already had experience looking at data and thinking about how to answer specific questions that relate to that community. I actually caught Clarissa right before the end of January here at MC, and it was really interesting to hear what she'd been up to. Yes, we're in the last week. I have tried to do uh, a template analysis for how to think about bonds, bail bonds, um, and fines that the police may charge you with when you're arrested. And it's it's more complicated than you may think. It's like, well, the question would be, are people of different races and genders um, being charged with uh, bail bonds or fines that are different? Um, and it sometimes the source of variation that you may think it's going to be there. It's not. And you may need to like twist your question a little bit. For example, in Durham, we have this data set that um, we couldn't really find any evidence or significant evidence of different amounts of bail bonds charged for people of different races. But the source of variation was in how charges are dropped before they got occurred. So people of different races and, and genders may be um, going accord with different amounts of charges and different severity of charges. And that actually doesn't have a lot to do with the policing, but more with the prosecution part. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, everything is connected in social sciences and it, it's complicated. So Indeed it is. But again, what we're trying to do is to set up the toolkits so that it lays out the process very clearly, makes each step a little easier and less intimidating, and sets local communities up to start the process of analyzing this type of data for some basic questions. For example, are people of color more likely to be stopped by police in our community? For teams with the benefit of a data scientist like Clarissa, they can begin investigating deeper questions, like the bail bonds investigation she just described. Okay. So far, we've gone over how to engage with the local community and get activists involved, how to get the data from police departments, how to clean and organize the data so it's usable, and how to build templates to ask specific questions you have. What's next? Well, if you have data science training or have worked with big data sets in the past, all of this might seem like not a big deal. But a lot of the community organizations that are interested in doing this work don't have experience coding. Right. I mean, how many people know R or Python well enough to take someone else's code and adapt it? Exactly. So how do we make sure this toolkit is actually going to be accessible to folks without this expertise? Uh, well, teaching everybody to code certainly isn't the way. Nope. And this is where Drew Lewis played a vital role. 
So I've been working on trying to make a version of this that is useful for somebody who does not know anything about coding and does not even want to look at code. That's a challenge. Yes. Um, so trying to think about what questions that they probably want to answer. Can we kind of lay out the analysis for them um, and get this basically automated if they have access to some data and it's in some nice form somehow? then we can go ahead and really walk them through answering these questions. So when I interviewed Drew, I joked that he was the king of GUIs, which he pointed out I was using jargon and should know better as a communications director. Uh-huh. <laughs> GUI, for those of you who haven't heard the acronym, stands for Graphical User Interface. Basically, it's what you see, for example, when you're creating a Google form. It's where you have boxes to add text or drop down menus or button select between multiple options. Right. It's an easier way to select across options in a point and click manner rather than working in the code. From what Drew told me, they started by creating an interface for one of the data questions that Clarissa was working on and then expanded from there. So now we have a kind of a template that, okay, this is for one particular kind of question, and now we can adapt that to other kinds of questions that people might want to answer. I should mention that we also had other team members working on portions of putting together this Stopa toolkit. That's right. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to catch everyone at MC over the month. It was just a whirlwind of activity. So who did I miss again? Well... Kanan Inse is a faculty member at Westminster College, and Ranthony Edmonds is a postdoctoral fellow at Ohio State University. They are both working on analysis streams similar to Clarissa's work. And thankfully, I was able to speak with most of the folks here physically at MC over the course of January. So I'm new to this whole podcasting thing, but is this the point where we Zoom and talk about what we accomplished in about a month? Almost, but first, let's take a quick break. If you're enjoying learning about the important research shared on our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Why This Universe. Why This Universe breaks down the biggest ideas in physics. Join theoretical physicist Dan Hooper and soon-to-be physicist Shalma Wegsman as they answer your questions about dark matter, black holes, quantum mechanics, and more on Why This Universe, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. <laughs> so did I tell you what stopa means in Polish? Um, no. <laughs> it's the Polish word for foot. It's really random, I know, and my partner always jokes that you've subscribed to Polish facts because I'm always sharing these weird tidbits like that. <laughs> Well, maybe with this new toolkit, we can get people to jump in with two STOPA to look at their local police department's records and know how to interpret what they find. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. So at the end of the month, how far did y'all get? That's a good question. We see the toolkit in three phases or levels. The first level is very basic. That is the 10 to 15 most common questions among teams that want to investigate these types of data when they're just starting out. This level assumes very little coding skill and is focused on very simple descriptive statistics. So just asking, you know, what are you trying to find out? Gotcha. Right. Then the second level 
is a deeper dive into some of those basic questions, as well as some additional slightly more complex questions that could, in theory, start to lead to predictive models. This obviously would require a team member with some real data science chops. So this is where a community group might start enlisting a data scientist such as yourself. <laughs> well, that's very generous. But as someone who is not really a data scientist, maybe another member of the QSide team with some real technical skills. But yes, the final level is the community of practice model, which is more free exploration of the data. This is very much like our STOPA research lab, led by Drs. Anna Hench, Ariana Mendible, and Manuch Aminian. Given that this is how we're thinking of it, our goal to get that first, most basic level defined and finalized, I'd say we're about 90% of the way there after the workshop. I mean, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm still in awe of how much progress both you and Carrie's group made over such a short time at MC. Thanks. Me too. It was a very amazing and productive month. And I know I didn't get the chance to speak with either Ranthony or Kanan, but they were both present via Zoom at the end of program presentation and had some really great things to say about their experiences. First up, let's hear from Ranthony. I think that in my day-to-day, -day, like this obsession with details and the, and the fine-tuned parts of the process are sort of what, what dominate. And so in these spaces, even if I come ready to center, like that default came back. And it was just really nice to sort of be uh, reminded of how the headspace of myself personally as a data scientist, like in these spaces, like needs to constantly, you know, adjust um, based on sort of what I'm used to centering, which is the numbers themselves, you know, and, and so it was just a really nice learning experience um, to be around others who really, who really care about this work and are wanting to use this um, to make communities better and to empower them. Kanan also spoke highly of the community that came together to build the STOPA toolkit and how such community is so necessary for these kinds of activities in the first place. I've really appreciated learning how much of a critical mass of math and data people there are uh, who are interested in doing work that does not center themselves. Uh, I think that especially when doing like data work, I, I feel like uh, as someone who's not trained in that field, I, I think that um, it, it's easy to lose sight of the people and focus on the mathematics. And I think that um, I think that continually reorienting ourselves toward community is a beautiful thing. So now that you have a prototype of this toolkit worked out, what's next? Well, you know how this research is, it's never really finished. Yes, we have a version done, but it will absolutely need refining and adjusting based on the needs of the community organizers that start using it. Do you currently have any specific small towns that you're working with on this prototype? Yeah, we're currently working with research groups at Michigan State, Northwestern, and Clarkson College to pilot the toolkit to begin collecting, cleaning, and analyzing their local policing data. We hope to scale it up and out to other communities in the coming year. Oh, yeah. When I spoke with Lily, she mentioned something about that. And the thing about it is that it, it is a very, you know, cyclical process where you have to, you know, 
continue to have these types of conversations about, you know, what is needed in the community and how to capture those needs. Because, I mean, yes, it's important to have folks in at the table who have these lived experiences. But then again, you can't have just a few people who have every lived experience possible in a community. Um, and so really, it's just about making sure that we start the conversation and create a, a resource so that people can begin to find certain you know, directions that can lead to that cyclical process and not make it so hard to to find folks in their area who might have that expertise. Because, you know, for a lot of grassroots organizations, yes, they might know like data science collectives and stuff at the universities. But then again, a lot of those universities might have histories of displacing folks in their community. And so it's like, do I really want to trust them, right? And so it's just making sure that we create trust and accountability and communication so that people can get the work done. Yeah, so it's still an iterative process that I'll continue working on well past leaving MC. Our STOPA Research Lab, which you can join by visiting our website, www.qsiteinstitute.org, meets twice a month and is continuing the work. And of course, to get folks actually using your toolkit means you'll need to advertise it in some way and build those connections with those organizations or people. Yeah, I know that was an aspect that Sam was particularly interested in as well. But how are we going to get it out there so that people know it's there? How can we figure out if people have used it? Uh, how are we going to uh, get it out into the different types of communities that it's aimed towards? Because it's aimed at people who do data science, but also people who are interested in, um, you know, trying to figure out and analyze police departments. And so trying to determine, like, maybe we should write up a methods paper around this so that some of the more scholarly community will see it because that's what you know people in the academy that is where they get their new information but that's not going to hit any of the community organizers at all uh, and so how do we make those connections Yeah, I see the appeal of writing up an academic paper as proof of concept, but I don't think that's actually going to reach folks in small towns that are agitating for change. This feels like it needs an approach of doing both the classic academic route and the actual outreach. Indeed it does, and as you suggest, the ultimate point is to help small towns and communities to use the toolkit better to understand how their community is being policed and to address any inequities that the data show. So once we have a level one of the toolkit in a semi-polished form, and we're very close, we'll be able to reach out to some community organizations that we have relationships with to pilot and make revisions. And we can also leverage the QSide network of nearly 900 affiliates to announce the tool and encourage folks to use it. So I have to ask, we've heard from the rest of the team about their roles and what they learned through the process of putting together this toolkit. Do you feel like you learned anything new or came away with something new from this experience? I always learn so much from working with data scientists on social justice projects. One thing that they always keep me true to is to do our best to be humble about what statistics, particularly descriptive statistics, are actually telling us. When the data show us an overrepresentation of policing of black and brown individuals and communities, 
that provides us with important information, but also needs to lead us to deeper investigation to really understand the root cause and hopefully rectify it so that community safety is experienced equitably and justly by all people in the community. I think what stuck out to me is how much can be accomplished when you bring together such a diverse team of motivated people and actually provide the resources for them to help achieve their aims. Academic research can move so slow and feel so insular, but it doesn't have to be. And we can be doing a better job of bringing in disparate voices from the start. Community-based participatory action research requires bringing in not just researchers from different fields, but people from the community as well. Definitely. I actually think we should leave these last words with Lily, since she spoke really passionately about being inclusive and integrating different voices outside the standard PhD program research. I really hope that institutions like UChicago, like MCE, um, like, you know, them can make this space more accessible to folks like me um, because I'm not, you know, a, a statistical anomaly. Like there are a lot of people who are my age and younger who want to get involved in this work and can't find those avenues because it is so hard to get the funding and to get the support to literally be gone for a month <laughs> and to live in a, a big city like <laughs> Chicago, right? And so I just hope that different institutions different companies, organizations make this more accessible to folks with needs. Um, because we're here, we want to do the work, and you don't. we don't need as much convincing as I think sometimes people need. We just need, you know, the support to get here. Don't forget to check out our show notes in the podcast description for more on MC's research collaboration workshops and how to submit your own proposal. And, of course, there will also be additional resources in the show notes for data science projects like this. And if you like the show, you can give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen. By rating and reviewing the show, you really help us spread the word about Carry the Two so that other listeners can discover us. And for more on the math research being shared at MC, be sure to check us out online at our homepage mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at mc underscore institute, as well as Instagram at mc.institute. And that's mc spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics and statistics connect with the world around us. Send mc an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to Sadie Witt at mc.institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T at mc.institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy, for his production on the show. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We are supported by the National Science Foundation and the University of Chicago. Oh, and happy Pi Day out there to all our listeners. But Ian and I often interrupt each other and it's hard to write those lines. Take three. Groovy, take four.
314. <laughs>